an ironic media production. Visit us at ironickmedia.com. Hey, y'all, I'm Bevan. And I'm Brittany. Welcome to Be My Neighbor. Our neighborly duties are to provide real-life solutions and practices that elevate and inspire, but also remind us to not take it all too seriously. We're real-life neighbors that quickly learn that you simply cannot do it on your own, living in a competitive and fast-paced environment like New York City. Each week, we invite you into the apartment along with our metaphorical and literal neighbors to share advice on how we get through this thing called life. We don't just share the sugar. We serve up the real tea. From navigating relationships to building a career, we want you to recognize and embrace the best version of you. We want you to know that you're crazy is okay. And that you're definitely not alone. Our door is always open. And we want you to know, we've We've got got your back. back. We are so honored to have Tom Hansen with us today. One of the hardest working people I've ever seen roll into a SoulCycle studio, coming off an all-nighter at CVS. He is the true definition of putting in the work, and he rides like a boss. Bottom line, he makes everyone in the room better, including me. To us, Tommy is the definition of a true neighbor. He takes care of his community by providing us with the most up-to-date information, and he doesn't just report, he puts himself on the line during these shoots, all the while advocating for change. For those of you that don't know Tom, he's an award-winning journalist and reporter for CBS News. We will get into all of that in a little bit, but he has been currently on the field during this monumental time in history in the heart of New York City. But Tommy, the first question I have to ask you, regardless of that incredible resume right there, is the number one most asked question I get about you. Are you ready? Are you single? <laughs> How did I know that was going to be the question? It's the absolute <laughs> truth. Set me up for this before. Um, you know, yes, I am. I'm, I'm very single. <laughs> Good. Wow. The people want to know. I'm playing, I'm playing the field. Maybe I'm a little too single. So if you know of anyone... <laughs> Uh, I'll keep, well, I know of about 15 to 20 SoulCycle writers that are dying to get your digits. So she said, literally everyone asks when you ride the podium, literally everyone comes out of class and says, that was really great. That was wonderful. But, um, the guy riding the podium, what's, what's his deal? What's up with him? Everyone. That cracks me up. That cracks me up because I actually get a little nervous. I mean, I, I did initially, I got a little nervous, like riding up for you, Bevan. It's a, it's a big deal. <laughs> To ride for your class, so good thing one I of us can do it. Now it's an honor. Now it's an honor. You're always welcome up there. When we get back, you're coming straight back up. Deal. So, Tommy, you. I mean, your resume speaks for itself, and we could not be more happy that you're here with us. We know that you've been covering the Black Lives Movement since Michael Brown and Trayvon Martin. And we really want to start it off by kicking it off and saying, can you tell us a little bit more about your experience covering the most recent protests and riots in New York City? You've literally been in the middle of it all. Yeah, you know, it's really remarkable to see this movement evolve over the course of a number of years. Obviously, this is not something that's new by any stretch, as this has been something that's been called on for for equality and justice uh, for, for decades now, you know. But I do feel like this time around, the level of support from people of all different backgrounds, all different races, it seems more unified. It seems like there's a lot more momentum and steam behind it. And we're seeing these sustained protests uh, that have been going on now for over three weeks since the death of George Floyd. So 
when you're in the middle of the crowd, uh, especially during the daytime when things tend to be a little bit more organized and there's more of a, a structure to the protests, where the marches are going, who's speaking, rallies um, around the city, it's a really electric kind of feel. Um, of course, we've also seen the other side of some of these protests that have turned into riots at night. Fortunately, we haven't seen as much of that recently. But you can just tell that it's a mixture of hope, positivity, grief, anger, anxiety, stress. You're feeling all of that all at once. And, and it really just depends on what direction you look. You will see somebody who is embodying one of those emotions, if not all of those emotions. So in some respects, it's a really remarkable and uplifting and inspiring thing to see. But in other ways, it's, it, it can be a little overwhelming. It's, it's a lot. It's a lot to experience all at once. Obviously, these calls are long overdue. It's really reassuring to see that there are some legislative changes that are being implemented. And, and in real time, we're watching this all unfold. So, you know, there's certainly a, a far longer way to go with regard to these protests. This isn't something that we're going to see wither away. It, it seems like this is something that really we're going to see more of uh, in the days and weeks to come. We hope, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's important for a marginalized group to be able to express their reality. You know, it's something that so many of us have a privilege and numbness too, right? Like we have not had to experience the reality of people of color in America because we are white. Our white privilege has prevented us from having to experience racism firsthand as it applies to us. Um, so, so yeah, it's important that this movement continues um, and, and change continues to happen. We were talking about this earlier, and you mentioned that you had a lot of takeaways since you've been covering all of this. And I'd really like to know what a few of those takeaways are that you have at this time. Yeah, I guess the first one would be coming from my vantage point as a white male. The first takeaway is to really shut up and listen. This is a forum for an open dialogue on race in America. Yes, that's true. But it's time for people like me who look like me, who walk in my shoes, in our shoes, to take a moment to listen to people of color who have a completely different reality and have been raised in a different environment than we've had the privilege of being raised in. So that would certainly be one takeaway right there. Another takeaway would be the realization that our reality is not the same as the reality of a, of a person of color. For a long time, I feel like growing up in Iowa, which is not exactly a bastion of diversity. Um, <laughs> really? I, yeah, yeah. Contrary to popular huh. belief, it's right. very, very <laughs> vanilla. Um, and so the fact of the matter is, I wasn't actually exposed to a lot of the problems and the plight of people of color in America. It was something that I naively believed to be a thing of the past, a thing of the 60s and 70s, something that we had moved past. And I think we're taught that in our education system, which is another fundamental issue yes, um, right. that, that we all you know, have been subjected to in some way, shape or form. So it took me realizing that and kind of unlearning a lot of the stuff that I had learned, a lot of those preconceived notions about, you know, oh, it's 2013, 2015, 2020, whatever year. 
that stuff couldn't possibly happen. No, it's still very much happening. And I think it's important to realize that that is still a reality. You can't subject other people to your perception of reality because what they're speaking is their truth, their reality. So that would be another thing. And then the, the third thing that I would bring up would be I've been really encouraged and inspired by a recent headline that shows that anti-racist literature is like flying off the shelves. Uh, It's taken up the majority of the top 10 slots on Amazon books, on the New York Times bestsellers list, on a list for USA Today as well. People are really making an effort to educate themselves. It's important for us not only to listen to people of color and advocate for our black and brown friends, it's also important for us to take time to educate ourselves on the real black history of America Mm -hmm. um, and better understand white supremacist structures that are very much still in play to this day. So I think that those would be my three things. Those are three really good things. (laughs) Listen, your reality is not their reality and educate yourself. Take time to educate yourself. The education part is huge too. I know Bev and I have been speaking about this every single day and we have a lot of different things planned to really just educate ourselves and to to learn more first before speaking. And I think you guys will see that and listen to that more as the podcast evolves because we want to make those efforts too. Like we want to not only learn more, but also bring on different people throughout our neighborhood and really kind of understand where everyone is coming from. But to go back to the protests quickly... You know, we saw a lot of members of the press being treated a little bit differently during some of these protests. And I didn't know, and we were both thinking about you out there covering all of this. And if you ever felt nervous at any time or ever felt like I could be arrested too, or I could be involved in a wrong scene too, like how is that feeling when you are covering something on the front lines like that? You know, this time around, I I haven't been covering the heated, intense protests, those situations that can change on the drop of a hat. But I do have to say, I've I've covered a lot of things. I've covered drug wars. I've covered genocide. I've documented genocide up close in Myanmar and in internment camps there. And for whatever reason, these kinds of protests at a certain point, there's just so much intensity. Like when Freddie Gray died at the hands of police several years ago. I went to cover those protests in Baltimore. And the nature of the protests was really unpredictable. There was a lot of anger. There was a lot of pent-up emotion in the people who were showing up to these things. And in those kinds of circumstances, a situation can go from being completely peaceful, predictable, to being volatile and unpredictable. And it is really scary. You know, you do sign up for this. Um, You do understand the risks involved. I will say the one thing that has really been eye-opening ever since Ferguson, because this was also true in, in Ferguson, the media being shot at and and targeted by police forces too. There's been an aggression there, um, you know, fortunately by rubber bullets, not like live fire or anything, but still rubber bullets can, can really do some damage. Yeah. And I think we saw that with a local reporter in Minneapolis this time around who was doing a live shot and felt that she had been hit with a bullet, turned out to be a rubber bullet. And then you see the cameraman pan over to the actual officers who are now aiming directly at the cameraman and at the camera. And you just kind of have this moment of, it's a very sobering moment, right? Like 
they can't possibly be aiming at the press. Why would they be aiming at the press? Oh, wait, no, they are aiming at the press. They are arresting the press. They are targeting the press. So these situations are dynamic. They are something that it's a long time coming. You know, these kinds of issues have been ignored by a lot of people in our society for so long. And so it's, it's easy to see how things can develop into what we're seeing today. Yeah. It's, it's, it's unsettling. It's exhilarating. It's, it's a lot of things all at once. It's a lot to, to take in. And also a side note. Yeah. I was one, like, you good, Tommy? Outside. Outside. <laughs> no, <laughs> there are choppers overhead because there must be, you know, people uh, protest stuff going on. Yep. So you hear that, that's when we were back in the city, that was the only, I mean, there's no pollution. We were just happened to be back this Saturday and, and it's so clear. I've never seen the city as clear as it was before. Like looking up second Avenue, you could see everything, yeah. but then the only, the only times that choppers were in the air, were covering the protests and covering everyone walking over Brooklyn bridge. Yeah. That was the only time. So you're literally right there right now, <laughs> right in, in the middle city. of it. Flying overhead. Sure. <laughs> sure. <laughs> It's interesting when you were talking about the anger and aggression, like I had a black friend of mine, we were talking about this and he was like, if you think about it, like your Coke bottle <laughs> and he was like all this stuff over all these years, it was like somebody would shake it just a little bit. Like every look, every time he walked, somebody pulled their purse closer in an elevator, things like that. Or somebody made an assumption. Somebody said something like, oh, you're, you're so articulate things like this. It's like the bottle just gets shook. And he was like, George Floyd felt like at some point it was the moment that the top just had to go. And so some of this stuff has just got to come to the surface and rise. And I think that's really important from our perspective too, as white people, as, as allies and advocates is to really listen to that anger and don't try to change someone's anger. Listen and hold their hand. Just be with them. Just stand with them. You know, so often I think we want to fix things and we want to change it. And I think especially as white women and white men, too, it's like, but I have really good intentions. I mean really well. I can't believe they didn't understand that this comment wasn't meant to be offensive. It's just like you got to let it go for a minute. Let it go for a minute. Let your ego go. Don't make this about you and just listen. And be a friend. We're back to that again. Right. I'm That's feeling so very passionate. True. It's it's things that can be as as small as a microaggression, but then the scale goes all the way to murder in, in the hands of police. And if you compound all of that, we can really get a better picture without fully understanding, because we'll never fully understand, but we can get a better picture of what the day-to-day is like for, for people of color in America. It's a, it's a different world. Yeah, It's a different world. And, and like you said, it's something where we can show up and be supportive. Another thing is that everyone is going through a layer of trauma, right? Especially in the Black community, when you see these horrific videos that are incredibly graphic, everyone is, is traumatized by that, or I would like to hope that everyone is trying yeah. to do that. Um, but especially our black and brown friends. This is a, an, an especially stressful time for them. So the other thing that I would also say that I've, I think it's important for us to remind ourselves is to check in on those people as mm, well. Yes. See how they're doing because this is a mentally tolling time and it's important for their well-being and to know that they have our support as, as allies and friends. That is such a good one. It's just, it's, it is like, you got to just show up now, show up for your friends, show up for your people as much as you can. Taking a little turn here. This is, 
this is going to be an interesting question, (laughs) but you know, so I know people in the world that watch just Fox news. I know people in the world that just watch CNN as a journalist and reporting all of this. How do you tell the absolute truth and not lean towards maybe your personal agenda or I I just don't really understand how this can happen. Like bottom line, Tommy, is the news real? Help me. (laughs) Did you like how I tried to say that That, articulately? And then I was like, fuck it. Yes, the news is real. It is backed by hundreds of people at every major network trying to accurately depict the truth. Obviously, there are different sets of of news outlets, right? There is the CBS News, which watch CBS if you don't tune in. But you know, there are these, there are certain levels of integrity. There's a blog that isn't fact check that oftentimes is clumped in with major networks as being the mainstream media or the media, which I don't really even know exactly what that means anymore because it encompasses so many different outlets that have different political leanings, have different kinds of fact checking protocol in place, have different ethics and standards. Mm. The news is absolutely real, but I would encourage everybody to take the initiative. If you do think something sounds fishy or if you hear things that you agree with too much, you know, that's a good one. Yes. And you need to, the onus falls on you to do a little bit of digging, but I think the best way to get the best picture of current events is to absorb lots of news from different perspectives. Cause if you do see the different outlets, the different ways that they cover it, you're going to notice that there are centralized facts and narratives that kind of line up for all of them. However, we have gotten into a really kind of toxic environment where there's a lot of opinion news or opinionated news outlets that are clumped in and conflated with news outlets that have real integrity. There are certain hours of coverage that Mm. are opinion clumped in with other hours where it's factual. Look at, for instance, uh, someone like Sean Hannity versus a Shepard Smith. You know, Shepard Smith is very much down the middle and Sean Hannity is very much an opinionated program. So there's just so much information thrown at you at all points, from all sides, at all times. It's important to absorb a lot of that information, but also do your own digging on the facts. It really does fall on you to to figure out what the best news outlets are at the end of the day and what the credible information is. And of course, we are doing our best at all the major networks in order to deliver news that is factual. Does every network get it right all the time? Of course not, because we're all human. But we are doing our very best and we take that fact-checking, the ethics behind our coverage very, very seriously to the point where people will lose their jobs if they get it wrong. You know, the the stakes are very high at the national level. And and so I think it's always an interesting question uh, when people question the integrity of mainstream news outlets, because there's a lot at stake versus some random blog. Instagram. Yeah, or Instagram, Instagram. conspiracy theory or Twitter where they can peddle a conspiracy theory. And that picks up the same amount of steam as an actual credible news source. 
Does that answer the question? Absolutely, it does. (laughs) Very refreshing. So refreshing to hear that from an actual journalist. Actually, you're the only person I want my news from ever. (laughs) I just trust you so much. Thanks. Yeah, you can just follow me on Twitter. (laughs) Keep me Um, updated. Yes. So now that we've actually gone into news, we want to get into some of your background, into some of the the fun stuff and wanted to know, did you always want to become a reporter? Is this always in your DNA? You know, yes and no. I didn't know it, but I was always pushed in that direction ever since I was like a little kid. Like when I was in third grade, this is going to sound so cheesy. You can cut it if you want. Absolutely not. also sound embarrassing. You preface it like that. We're keeping it. But yeah, exactly. I just, I really just undermined my myself there. But like, basically like when I was in third grade, we started like our own little elementary school newspaper that I was the editor in chief of, and it was called the Playground Press. Cute. Yeah. And it wasn't, and there was no news in it. It was like, I don't know, like a a play-by-play of like the flag football game at recess. It was so (laughs) stupid. But anyway, that should have been a sign. And then when I was like later in grade school, I lost a very heated race for mayor of what we called Exchange City, which was like a real life community where like there was a mayor and there was a judge and there was like the small business folks. And they gave me um, reporter and DJ or like, you know, like <laughs> yes. over like the intercom. So, that, I mean, those were two like early signs, but like really it didn't come until I was uh, in my senior year of high school and I was in an AP language composition class and my teacher, I was really f- struggling as to what I was going to pursue in college. My teacher pulled me aside and, and mentioned like, have you looked into journalism? And so I was like, huh, you know, that that's interesting. I've always been good at writing and, and focused on that. And so I looked into journalism programs that led me to Arizona State. And I feel like it's just kind of been leapfrogging from there, you know, and somehow I found my I found my way here by following my gut. But I didn't ever really set out to be a journalist at the very beginning. I, I guess it just was something I was so blind to. You know? Let's talk about know. that. Throw. Bring back the playground press. We yeah, really I know, right? Back. Hopefully but- some kids are listening and they can start a new... Yes, they absolutely should. Do you have a guttural reaction to things you said by following my gut? Like, are you someone that is quick to make decisions and know, you know, you're going in the right way? Absolutely. I know when I'm going in the right way and I know when I'm not. I know when things are like in flow and when they're out of flow. What does that mean for you? What that means is like following your intuition. I've gravitated toward this path. It hasn't been something where I actively sought out anything, you know, because at the end of the day, whenever I've tried to make a plan, life always ends up blowing it up anyway. (laughs) So this has always been something that each step of this journey has been something that has come to me or fallen in my lap. Granted, I do believe that, you know, being at the right place at the right time, doing and saying the right things, that pretty much is what I would classify as luck, you know? And I feel like I guess I've just been doing that all along. But no, I didn't, I didn't like ever plunk out. Like I want to be, you know, here at this age doing this. Yeah. As much as it was like, oh, you know, CNN offered me an internship that I initially got turned down for, you know, and then they came back and, and said a, a slot opened up and offered it to me. And then CNN offered me a full-time job. And then that led to a promotion and, 
moved to Atlanta and then the channel one thing came along and that was something that completely came out of left field. I, I was content with being a producer and being behind the camera. And then the CBS thing came after that. Wait, I didn't know you were behind the camera initially. Yeah. Yeah. So I graduated college um, a year early and just started plunking away at CNN. I was a news assistant and then working with the Situation Room with Wolf Blitzer and that show team, which I had been their intern prior to, to that job. And then basically I, I got a promotion to move down to Atlanta, which was the mothership at the time. Um, and I became an associate producer. And yeah, I mean, I was 21 at that point. So that was like, you know, a pretty quick run out the gate, you know, <laughs> overachiever. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I needed to calm down just a little bit, but yeah. And then basically, you know, the rest is just kind of serendipitously locked into place and I don't know where it's going to lead, but hopefully, hopefully we're just at the beginning. <laughs> well, I love the way that you approach it. I love that you lean into what is being presented in front of you and, and I think that's what you mean when you say in flow, right? You can't like try to get some of these things to work. You can't like force a puzzle piece into mm. the wrong part of the puzzle. And I do think that like the universe, not to get like super like... That's where we want to go. No, we, yeah, we, that's <laughs> but, where we go. <laughs> but the, the universe, it speaks in whispers. They get louder and louder and louder. And then like, if you resist you get like smacked over the head with like an opportunity or, or a re- dose of reality or whatever. I think that that speaks to like my very core, you know? And so I get pulled in those directions and I just follow it because you can't resist those kinds of things. And you mentioned before when we were having our pre-interview about channel one okay. and we didn't know what channel one was. We were like, what's channel one? Where And how did we miss this? I know. How did, how did I miss this too? I mean, like I didn't know what channel one was until I got the job, <laughs> but, but you know, I had already like, and I thought it sounded cool. So basically like for anyone who doesn't know, and I assume that at least a small portion of the people who are going to be listening to this do know channel one and grew up with it. But basically, Channel One was an educational news show, not to be confused with New York One or Fios One. Those are different. But we were an educational news show that went out to millions of high schoolers across the United States. We went directly into classrooms. And basically, we would deliver the news to a young audience with the mission of educating youth in the United States. So that job was pretty insane because they would allow you the time and budget to travel all over the world um, and drop in and out of global hotspots, cover topics that really made you think, inspired you as a journalist. It really was a dream job. And I didn't really realize it until I was until it ended um, <laughs> abruptly. Channel One shut down, sadly, in 2018. But in the time that I was there, I was there for five years. And I remember my first assignment as a 22 year old, as a 22 year old was to go to East and Central Africa and cover elephant poaching in the ivory trade. And that included me like flying in a two seater plane above the sub-Saharan wilderness, leaning out with a camera, (laughs) looking for kill sites for elephants and potentially, you know, risking getting shot by poachers. And then the other stories was a 20th anniversary piece on the Rwandan genocide covering child soldiers and a demobilization camp along the Congolese border. Those were like my first three stories. At 22, I was like deciding if I wanted a pickleback shot or like a kamikaze. And this is what you were doing. 
it was nuts. And, and it seems almost like a past life. The other thing that was so insane about it was like, they would bestow so much trust upon you. Like they would have you in charge of a $20,000 budget. Like I went to Iran for instance, which was a place that I always wanted to go and a topic I always wanted to cover and a geopolitical nugget that I wanted to dig into. And then also, you know, deliver to our teenage audience. And when I went there, because of sanctions and all of the tensions between Iran and the United States, of course, one thing you cannot do is use a credit card or a debit card because American banks don't do business in Iran. So we had to take, I think it was $15,000 in cash, like drug lords. I'm uncomfortable. I'm uncomfortable. Yes. Packing it in random parts of our bags and making sure we were accountable for all of it. And then we had to go to a black market in Iran and transfer it over to Iranian real. And like, that was an experience that I had 24, 25. I mean, like, and then, you know, I just kind of upped the ante every single time. So like after that, I decided, well, I want to cover a drug war and Lisa Ling covered a drug war for channel one, like back in the day, or like Anderson Cooper covered genocide for channel one back in the day. So I would literally go back into our archives and dig up their old scripts, figure out what elements they got because they had like brilliant producers like that were towing the line between 60 minutes and channel one, whatever, you know, like they were, Legendary. we were a much leaner operation, let's just say. So but I would dig up these old scripts and I would parse through them and figure out what elements they got, what I really liked about their writing, what I really liked about their storytelling. And then I would try to adapt that to my own storytelling. And the really interesting thing is like, even though some of the stuff that they did spanned, like it was like 20 years before I was trying to cover a similar topic, the trends, the overall takeaways, the issues themselves were not different. You know, it was... Lisa Ling covering the drug war in Colombia and embedding with independent rebel militias there. And literally you flash forward 20 years down the road to Mexico. And it's like, I'm embedded with independent rebel militias in lawless parts of Mexico, chasing down poppy fields and, you know, going along with the crime photographer to document homicides and stuff like that. And like, I don't know. It's, it's, it's a, it's an interesting kind of take on how history works. It goes Mm. in a spiral, right? Like, I feel like that's the cliche. But yeah, it was a dream job. It, it was, was basically job. like doing so much. The most incredible graduate school program that you got paid for yeah. on the planet. It was a crash course. Yeah. It was a crash course in everything. Oh man, I learned all my chops. I played you should listen to like my first pieces at Channel One though. They're like kind of cringy. It's like, oh, <laughs> I did not know how to track or talk to camera or do any of that stuff. And like the channel one way was to turn to the camera off the cuff as if you're talking to a friend. It's it kind of like, like a, oh hey. Yeah. Didn't yeah, see you there. Like they they wanted you to kind of ditch the formal stand-ups. Of course, like we would do that when we had to, but like ditch the formal stand-ups and talk to a friend and your friend was the camera. So you're always like uttering like random thoughts about the situation to the camera. And eventually you get good at it and you're like, okay, I know what, what's what, but like those first few shoots were. (laughs) (laughs) Were you so aware of the, I mean, I would just, I would feel like I would be that scene from Talladega Nights when he's like, I don't know what to do with my hands. (laughs) That's exactly where I feel like I'm doing it now currently. You know, that actually is a very difficult question to answer. What do you do with your hands? What do you do? (laughs) Everyone has like their own kind of thing. I don't know. You just like make sure that you're not doing the 
the tea leaf or whatever it is, like, you know, putting your hands like down. Yeah. 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 I was told that I would, I was like choking people when I first started. <laughs> You're like, um, And so what you kind of do is like, what I do now is just like, I like, I don't want to, I don't know how to do this. Now you got to tell us, like, you know, you just like kind of like, this. <laughs> like hold your hands there and maybe like gesture here, or gesture there, but it's very subtle. Definitely someone who I look to mirror would be like an Anderson Cooper or like a David Muir. They, yeah. they have it down. They really do. And you know what? Now that you mentioned this, this like hand grab situation in yeah. front of the body, I feel like I've seen it so much. And now it's all I'm going to be looking at. Yeah. Totally. Well, you know, they have like coaches that that like give you a variety of options on what to do. The other thing they tried, they instructed me to do at one point, And I, don't, I hope I'm, I hope I'm allowed to say this. I don't, <laughs> I don't like anything scandalous, but like was to stand as like a Superman pose. Ah, and this is what I've been coached to do now. So they're like, you want to have like an open cause they, they were instructing me. They were watching some of my live shots for CBS this morning. And like, they were like, you kind of caved inward and you need to like, be outward. You know, it's all these like things that you never even think about. But does this affect your personal life now too? Because I became very aware when I was studying acting and stuff like that. I'm very aware of what my body language says at all times. And I was having a conversation with strangers the other day and I had my hands crossed because I was really cold. And then I just became so aware of where my body was. And I just was like a robot. And these people were terrified of me now. <laughs> You're like a mannequin. Yeah, like, I really oh, was. I don't know. I mean, no, it doesn't really bleed over into my personal life. I would say more than anything, the voice bleeds over into my personal life. But I feel like I have finally found like a good balance of the two where like, you know, I'm not talking in my news voice, but like, so I went to, I had to uh, officiate a friend's wedding. Oh, that's right. How long ago was that? That would have been like, Oh, like a year ago almost, or maybe like eight months ago. And they had me speaking and they had me doing a prayer. Okay. Like I am, I'm not going to, you know, preach the gospel or like, it's not going to be like exciting and dynamic. And the only thing that I could resort to was speaking in my news voice and everyone afterward, I got off the podium and everyone was like, was that your news voice? Oh my gosh, that was your news voice. And I listened to it back and I was like delivering a freaking prayer. Like I was Walter Cronkite. It was the most embarrassing thing. So I actually try not to, but I also like would like to think that at a, at a certain point, like my news voice would cross over into my personal voice because you want to be your authentic yeah, self. Yeah, totally. And my authentic self doesn't recite prayer in front of <laughs> hundreds of people. No, but I get so Yeah. My husband says it to me all the time. He's like, you're not segment talking me. Stop talking. And I'm like, I'm not trying to do that. I have no idea what I'm doing. And he's like, you're talking to me. It's not your real voice. I'm like, okay. You're like, okay. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. My sister does that. Or too. selling him. Like I'm selling him as if I'm selling something on a segment. He's like, just stop selling me. You're not, it's not working right now at all. You're like, but it is, but it actually is. But it is. <laughs> Jedi. Mind. Jedi nonsense. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Tommy, we are just like so blown up. I mean, I personally have gotten to witness it firsthand is this crazy amount of drive that you have in you. Where does it come from for you? Oh man. I don't really know. I think it was like beaten into my head at a really young age, like subconsciously. My parents have always pushed me to do more, to always come from a point of how can I improve and better myself and be better. Um, even if you get 99% on a spelling test, how can you get 100% next time? I also, from a young age, I was on a really, really competitive baseball team insanely competitive. When I tell you some of the stuff that we would do in our practices, it was like nuts. <laughs> our 
coach would put, I was an outfielder. Our coach would put, which was not a bad thing at that point. It was actually, <laughs> it was actually no. indicative of a lot of talent for yep. like competitive teams. So like he would Getting a little a defensive small, here, Tommy. Yeah, exactly. no, <laughs> it's I'm not over, little league. I'm over it's AAU. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and like oh. our coach would set a small barrel bat on home plate and launch a pitching machine straight up into the air, turn it up to full speed, launch the ball as high, and you had to catch the ball, and then you had three tries to hit the small barrel bat on home plate. And then you had to run laps if you didn't do it. (laughs) It was like, yeah, it was pretty intense. But like, even then, like, I was on this intense baseball team, and I'm trying, trying, trying for a top slot. I was always like the one who just didn't make the starting lineup and just didn't reap the benefits of all the work that I was putting in and all the time that I was putting in. And something about that flipped a switch in my mind about working harder, making it undeniable to all the doubters out there that you're capable of doing a job and doing it well Mm. and leaving nothing to doubt. And that propelled me through school that propelled me through my professional career, especially early on. There were always people telling me I was too young, didn't have enough experience, too green, whatever you want to chop it up to be. And I would, I, I feel like, you know, that's a trend. A lot of rejection, of course, yeah, in, in the industry that you're in. Yeah. And, and so you kind of are always in this vantage point of defying odds, defying someone's odds. And I feel like that's kind of where my drive comes from. And and that's something I was facing as a child too, you know, when when it came to competitive sports and stuff like that. And then also like with the career stuff, it taps into like a really passion driven part of me, Mm. you know, it's not just my career, it's my hobby, it's my life, it's part of my identity. So it comes as second nature to go above and beyond at some points, especially at channel one. I mean, I was able to pursue anything and everything that inspired me, like, you know, what better job is there out there? Like always I could, I could go after these things. And so of course it was like cool and fun, you know, (laughs) to do that and to do that kind of journalism. So I feel like I've really stepped into the pocket, so to speak. Yeah. Get in the pocket, get in the pocket pocket, of that beat. No. And that's like the thing is like, it feels right. You keep going and you keep, it's almost addictive. You keep asking for more. I feel like you're just the true definition of grit. And I love that book. I, I love everything about how you you really push it to the edge and are always trying to better yourself and learn from your mistakes. I think it's incredible what you've done so far and at such a young age too. I mean, thank you. We're just beginning. That's yeah. Say. It's, I mean, I, I guess there, there are two types of people or maybe there are more than two types of people, but like there's people who fall into one category or another. There are the people who are afraid of failure And there are the people who don't even think about failure. They're kind of blind to it. You're not like, what if this goes wrong? You're like, what if this goes right? You know, I've always fallen into that category of being motivated and inspired to ask for more, to get more. And without that fear, at least that irrational fear of failure that holds you back. I've never had that except for a fear of heights. Like I would never like jump off of like a building, you know what I mean? Like, or anything like that. It's just like, but you know, that's, I think that's the only fear that would like kind of hold me back at this point. What would you say to a young kid right now who was kind of facing that repetitive thought of rejection? Oh my gosh. Um, well, on a broader sense, and I'll, and I'll siphon this into like uh, an easier, more palatable form of advice on a broader sense. It really does test you to your very core. 
it makes you find a true sense of self. If you can really hone in on who you are, it doesn't matter how many times you get rejected because at your very core, you know what makes you special. So when it comes down to it, I would just say to a younger person who's facing rejection, it's not easy, but keep reminding yourself what makes you special, what makes you shine. And if it's rejection in your personal life, then first of all, you don't need to spend a lot of time dwelling on that. Nope. And secondly, surround yourself with people who will lift you up and position yourself in a way where you will shine the brightest. That's what I would say. That's a really good answer. <laughs> yes. It's a it really is tough good though. I mean, it wears you down. If you, I mean, you know, we're all in that kind of sphere where we face a lot of rejection, whether it be acting or even when it comes to soul cycle, you know, I was blown away by the auditions. I don't know if we can talk about that. <laughs> oh yeah, we absolutely. By like how many people show up to those auditions and how selective it really is. Like, it blew my mind just a little bit because it was Mm -hmm. like, holy crap, there's like hundreds of people here and like very few slots. We all kind of live in that like sphere of like rejection and it's to be expected. And I, I do think that if you can really hone in on who you are and know who you are and be grounded in that, you can overcome all of that. It's not easy. Not not easy for like the most confident people even. Exactly. You know? so. But it is one of those things. Every time you put yourself in a situation where maybe you do feel that sense of rejection, if you can take it and, you know, learn from it and take a minute and go, okay, what can I do differently here? None of that was lost. It's all building blocks. It's all stepping stones, right? A hundred percent. And I actually, that reminds me of an anecdote of this, like in real time. I was on assignment in Bangladesh and Myanmar and I had casual. Yeah, casual. Um, <laughs> and I had just gone through like some grueling reporting on what we now know as genocide in Myanmar and also on child labor in Bangladesh and how it translates directly to the goods that we wear and and and, and whatnot. So it was a trip, you know, but on my way back I was asked to stop in a, a bureau for a specific outlet that I won't won't mention. Um, and they were, they wanted to do an interview. Basically they looked at my, at my channel one stuff and they deemed me to be like too squeaky clean. Like you're not gritty or cool or trendy enough to be on our show. Whatever. And sorry, but thanks for playing. And like, I, I left that office like devastated because it was like a dream to work for this organization. And on my flight, on my long sad flight home from London, six hours left alone with my thoughts. I started to like flip the script of like, woe is me to what did they say that I can take with me and and develop myself with? And I ended up cutting a new reel with all of, cause I was like, I've done all this stuff. I've done all the stuff that this organization would, would definitely air and do. And I redid my reel changed my tracking, changed my storytelling, changed all that stuff, made it so much stronger without even really knowing it. And when I watched it back, like that's the reel that got me recognized at CBS initially. That's the reel that has gotten me attention from a lot of different scouts out there. And so I would just say like, if you can, you can turn, you can always turn that. You can always find a positive 
angle to any sort of rejection or criticism too. Love that. I always try to turn a no into a yes. Even if I'm told no a million, million times, literally from any show, any casting director, producer, they've told me no countless amounts of times. Mm -hmm. Still speaking to them, still reaching out to them, still letting them know, oh, I covered something differently. This is how I did it. Because you never know what that could turn into or maybe where they move to down the line or where the new opportunity might open up for you. Absolutely. And I, I genuinely do feel at a certain point, like the people who really make it are either a little crazy or the biggest gluttons for punishment because yeah. like you the further along you go, the more rejection you face, the more times people will say something that could potentially like knock you down a notch. And it goes back to the whole thing about positioning yourself in a way to shine your brightest and to not let that stuff really dull the shine that you do bring to the table. You know, Tommy, do you have time for a social life? (laughs) You know, it depends. I think I make time, but then I also turn into a hermit every now and then. You gotta be tired. I I surface and then (laughs) dive back down and then surface again. Um, (laughs) But I make time for myself. It's important to make time for yourself when you have a really demanding and stressful job, you know, and that's something that I'm not the greatest at, but it's something that I always have to remind myself to do, (laughs) you know, whether it's taking a vacation or just taking time off or just seeing friends, because otherwise I can, I'm someone who does get so wrapped up in the job that it can take away from that and it can affect relationships. So that's constantly something I, I'm trying to improve on. Good. We're just manifesting that right now. Yes. Putting it out there. <laughs> make it a reality. And time for a dating life eventually, hopefully. Yes, 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 yes. I'm going to get 700 emails as soon as this comes out. <laughs> Hands up. People are like, I'm ready. <laughs> well, I didn't know if you wanted to hit on pride or... Let's talk about pride. Yes. This year, pride's a little different, but pride is like the best time of year. I feel like for me personally, like I, it's like gay Christmas, like for me. It's <laughs> the best um, for everyone. It's everybody. It's so fun. It's June. The weather's great. Everything's opened up normally. This year, obviously, that's not the case. But I do find it to be a really important and interesting intersection that we're seeing right now. I don't know if you guys caught the imagery of the the Black Trans Lives Matter. Yes. Um, I just got chills again. March that, that came. A few of my friends season. were there. It was incredible to see those images coming out of there. There's going to be a march for proper Pride Weekend that also is for Black trans lives. And I think that that is just such an incredible thing to see two different minorities rally around each other and support each other. Because at the end of the day, I don't, I don't know if a lot of gay people realize that. I think, they're, I think they're starting to wake up to the fact that the whole reason that we have the rights that we do is actually because of trans women of color who started all of the riots. Mm-hmm. I want to use that word again, riots for Stonewall that got us rights you know, and, and on a pathway, a jettison to equality. And so it's just so important and so reassuring to see that the community, the gay community, the LGBTQ community is backing the black community and particularly black trans lives. Cause within like BLM and all that stuff that we talk about so often nowadays, nowadays, like we rarely shine a spotlight on the fact that trans women, especially trans women of color, actually face 
a disproportionately high rate of homicide and violence in this country. Yeah. Um, it's one in four trans women. It's higher than that if you're a trans woman of color. So it's going to be a special pride in the sense that we're taking time to really pay respect and give awareness to this, this issue instead of a, a peer dance and a parade as fun as that stuff typically is. Sure. You know, it's, it's going to be really cool to see that. And I hope it elevates not only black voices, but trans voices too. I think that's a really important intersection that we need to support more. I think it's going to be really, really special. I think it's yeah. something you're, we're all going to remember for well, forever, you know? <laughs> yeah. This, uh, yeah. 2020 will be a year hard to forget. <laughs> that is true. Gosh. Definitely yeah. eye-opening. Definitely yeah. eye-opening. And I guess ending on that note, you know, we like to make sure we conclude with something our listeners can always take away. And I know you touched on it a little bit before. And if you're just joining us now or catching the tail end, we just would like to really focus on on these two movements, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement, the transgender movement, and how you've seen your fellow neighbors teach their other neighbors the best way to advocate their feelings going forward. And from your experiences, what can we do to be better? Okay, yeah, that's um, that's <laughs> a loaded question. A nice light question. question to... an important question. These are tough discussions. These are discussions that need to be had more. And I do feel like before I get into the answer, having these tough discussions is almost like working a muscle. The more that you have it, the stronger that muscle gets and the easier it is to, to have those kinds of transparent discussions that we have all been uncomfortable or scared or didn't have time for, mm. you know, so to speak, um, in, in the past. So I think that one important thing to keep in mind is the fact that as white people, if we're talking about Black Lives Matter, it's important for us to not just be not racist ourselves, but as we've heard time and time again, to be anti-racist, to take time to educate people who are making ignorant statements or don't understand why Black Lives Matter versus All Lives Matter, taking the time to explain to them what that means and to educate our own community. It was our community that really created this problem. Even if it was generations ago, we have always been on the better side of things when it comes to racial equality. So it's important for us to have those kinds of conversations, not be scared to call out racism or call out microaggressions or call out racist stereotypes when we see them. When it comes to trans issues, I think that that also is the same. I think it's something where you you have to take the time to be strong and, and hold people accountable for their perception of, of trans people as well. You know, it's difficult to ask a minority to always have the burden of explaining to a majority why their stance is offensive or wrong. It's a weight. It's yeah. a weight to carry and it's long overdue that we help carry that weight, if not take it completely off their shoulders. Yes, Tommy, you close this out. <laughs> I, was, I was really, really wordy during all of this entire podcast, no, wasn't I? <laughs> no, no, you're incredible. Eloquent and incredible. You've said some really, really great things that, I mean, I'm, I'm sitting here, I'm like, oh, you're inspiring me to get out there and just deal with all these people giving rejections and just being inspired to, to push on, which I think a lot of us right now in this period are, we're a little stuck. And in this quarantine, just trying to figure out the next step and 
advocate for ourselves and speak out too. It's, it's really, it's, it's a very trying time. A lot of people in relationships are going through it. Yeah. <laughs> I've been hearing. So you've been, Friendly. you've been so helpful. <laughs> yes. life. I mean, yes. but either made a lot of relationships or, or ended a or lot just of them. broke them yeah. up, broke them off. <laughs> exactly. Oh, That's amazing. You're incredible. This is awesome. Thank you guys for having me on. You guys are incredible. This awesome. is so fun. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I wish we could all be in person. I know. Me too. That's how normally. we normally do it with a big bottle of wine too. Yeah. Oh normally we do this in Bevan's apartment <laughs> and this, this is new for us as well. So thank you for dealing with us with this oh and gosh, everything else. Easy. Tommy, thank you so much. Thank you. Yes. Awesome. Thank you Here's so much. Really 